My name's Emerson Malone. You're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. You're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network, and you're listening to, on the Emerald Podcast Network, an episode of Culture Rap. I'm Dana Alston, Associate Editor on the Arts and Culture Desk at the Daily Emerald. I'm Sarah Davies, Arts and Culture Editor at the Emerald. And I'm Alec Cowan, Senior Podcast Editor. And Culture Rap is just an opportunity for uh, Emerald staffers to gather in the podcast recording booth and talk about all things arts and culture, whatever interests them. And hopefully we have a bit of a fruitful discussion between us folks. So, Dana, what's been interesting to you this week in arts and culture? <laughs> well, excellent segue, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I, I'll kick it off because there's all this talk about Netflix being in debt and all that. Uh, I figured it'd be cool to talk about Netflix shows. Alec has something about Stranger Things later on. Indeed. Um, I'll start off with Mindhunter, which is the latest uh, Netflix series executive produced by David Fincher, which if you've read my bio on DailyEmerald.com, he is my one true god. Um, I'm a huge fan of David Fincher. He's a filmmaker that has been working in film for decades. Um, His most famous work is probably Fight Club and The Social Network, Zodiac, Seven. Um, Basically a whole lot of of movies about um, deviance. Um, Not coincidentally, Mindhunter is about the birth of the behavioral science unit in the FBI in the late 70s. This is the department that was formed that basically came up with the term serial killer, and they profiled serial killers and deviants and mass murderers to try to come up with a profile and teach it to local police, basically how to tackle these kinds of cases. Um, It stars Jonathan Groff as the young upstart FBI agent um, who sort of takes it upon himself um, to start the behavioral science unit along with his partner, Bill Tench, played by Holt, Mc, uh, excuse me, Holt McCallany. Um, and it's another test. I, I, it's a wonderful show. Like I, I'm, I'm currently, I just finished the second to last episode. I'm completely hooked on. Um, it's a series that I recommend to pretty much everyone, but especially if you're fans of the films that I mentioned, um, David Fincher, in all his David Fincherness, is on full display here. Um, his attention to detail, his way of working with actors, the way he constructs the aesthetics of his programs. Um, it's also the second Netflix series that he's produced. He also he was the one who helped come up with House of Cards, um, which will be suspend, which has suspended production. Which has died, yeah. Well, I mean, they said they'd end it after season six, but they've suspended production because apparently people on set feel that Kevin Spacey is acting like at like a predator toward them, which is absolutely awful. <sighs> but getting back on topic, Mindhunter. Speaking of Mindhunter again, um, Jonathan Groff is an interesting actor because I feel like I've only ever known him from musical theater and Glee, which are yes. one in the same in my mind. Yes. Yeah, so I started watching Mindhunter um, around the same time my parents did. And when I explained to them that Jonathan Groff was actually King George from Hamilton, they did not believe me until I showed them a video of Jonathan Groff on Stephen on Colbert. Um, and it, I agree with you; it's an interesting choice. But I think he nails it. Um, he brings sort of this sweet naivete to this dude who's interviewing absolutely horrific human beings. I mean, there are scenes in here that are 
pretty disturbingly graphic, not in their visual, but in their language. I mean, it features people talking about, like, you know, exactly what serial killers do to people. It's sort of, like, mixes hard-boiled detective language with this very analytical style, um, which Fincher is known for. I just... Jonathan Groff, that's so interesting to me. And what you say about, like, his character is interesting because, like, I I can imagine his acting style, but not in a show like that. So it's really Mm -hmm. cool. I think I'll have to watch it now. I like Jonathan Groff. Well, part of the the plotline of the show is how this guy who is very clean cut, um, always wears a suit, pretty conservative, um, sort of comes into his job and interviews these people but also starts to get influenced by them to the point where in one of the later episodes he like his interviewing techniques get so extreme that some of his colleagues begin to worry about him and so the plot is like how is it affecting the interview interviewers as well as the interviewees are are these serial killers rubbing off on the people who are asking them questions i feel like that's a good point to segue into alex's discussion of stranger things so of course stranger things is the hot button TV show recently, of course, the long-anticipated season two release, and I just finished it, what was it, last night at like 2 a.m., and I was a huge fan of Stranger Things season one. Obviously, it's one of the more successful Netflix originals like House of Cards, and I had a lot of discrepancies with season two, um, especially when it comes to narrative and plot, and also just, I guess, the feel and momentum of it, and kind of one thing that we were talking about you know, before coming into the booth was this idea of binging versus kind of a more serialized approach to to watching watching shows. I mean, we have, of course, your traditional show that comes out week by week, some things that are really popular, like Mr. Robot right now, which I really enjoy. And then we have Netflix, which has kind of almost flipped the script on how we enjoy what we consider TV shows. I mean, I always find myself trying to describe a Netflix show as not the same as a TV show because it really is a different digestion of the show. And so, Dana, you were talking about kind of how the experience that we get of a show really changes when we are given a whole season and given, you know, a week to binge the whole thing, basically. Yeah, well, I think there's a distinction to make there, though. It's not that we're given a week to binge the whole thing. It's like we're given it to do with what we want, but the episodes are constructed to be watched in order right after the other. So, some of them may be constructed to be uh, or may be constructed to be viewed as one long movie others um you can sort of watch week to week you can do whatever you want with them um I, but going back to stranger things too one of the things i read was that basically the the budget was hugely increased and you can kind of tell that you know the reason they deliberately call it stranger things 2 instead of stranger things the season 2 because it very much feels like a movie sequel I haven't seen the second season yet, and I was wondering if that's true. It was that if that was true in your eyes? And I would definitely agree with that. The premise of the show, or I guess of of the long form movie, if you want to put it that way, is that it's kind of Stranger Things one with definitely more budget. I mean, it seems like it's just Stranger Things one on a bigger scale. Um, there's more. It's the same kind of problem, but it's just multiplied by like a thousand. It's the same kind of enemy that the characters have to face but it's just on a bigger scale and in that regard it really does feel like it's well you talk a little bit about i don't i think it's an interesting point you talk about it's like a thousand times bigger and i think that's an interesting thing to think about when it comes to sequels and kind of further releases like 
you obviously don't want the show to be the exact same, but you also want it, and you want it to keep some of its original, like the original reasons you loved it, but you also want it to grow. But sometimes when it grows too much. And that was one of the issues that I really had with Stranger Things too, is that obviously it has a lot more hurdles to overcome because it doesn't have the same ability to surprise us as Stranger Things 1 did. We're already familiar with the characters and the universe. And so in that regard, it is a lot harder to create more uh, ingenious plots, ingenious characters, a lot more interesting things in the show because we're already accustomed to everything. And it really felt like it didn't have as much to surprise us with. It felt like it was rehashing a lot of the same devices, a lot of the same plot points. And in that regard, that's why it's kind of like, you know, Stranger Things 1 times a thousand. It just seemed like everything in Stranger Things 1, it was trying to play back on that and then just expand on it, make it bigger. Since we're talking so much about comparisons to the original, here's a question for both of you. Um, was the first one even good? I didn't finish it. So in my mind, it was, I mean, it was interesting. It was very hyped at the time. And I started watching it like right after the hype had kind of started to die down. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I get scared really easily. Yeah. (laughs) So watching it was a little hard for me just because I am, I have visceral reactions to like death scenes and scary stuff. Yeah, I did really enjoy season one, or I guess the first Stranger Things. Yeah, I agree. I I enjoyed it. Um, I think this goes to what we were talking about earlier about the difference between binging binging a show and watching it week to week, um, and how they're constructed. I'd argue that Stranger Things has a very coherent, easily understandable storyline from a very macro level. You can tell that they're that it's meant to be followed one immediately after the other and you can watch it as so many people did in 10 hours if that's what you choose to do um i don't i i think stranger things suffered a little bit when when it was asked to um give the characters a little bit more exposition like the first three episodes i thought joyce played by winona Ryder, had zero personality whatsoever and the only quality we really know about her is that she ne- she wants to find her missing son which makes sense but there's no room for her character develop to develop outside of that until like episode four or five and it seemed like stranger things 2 took account of that and was trying to develop a lot of the more tertiary characters mm-hmm. like joyce like jim hopper and it seems like we really do it tries to build on to their characters and give more exposition but it kind of fails in a lot of regards um 11 who of course is kind of the central plot point in Stranger Things 1 takes a very backseat role in Stranger Things 2. And I think that's almost to the point of working against Stranger Things 2. I mean, there's one episode that's at this point kind of infamous for being just really bad, for having a lot of extra characters that don't play much of a role in the entire long-form narrative of Stranger Things 2. And it's almost kind of a throwaway episode. And it features Eleven. It's supposed to kind of be this, like, Luke Skywalker goes to Dagobah and trains type of episode. But it really doesn't, you know, I don't want to give away too much, but it really doesn't create much of an impact in the story as a whole. It's it's a throwaway episode. And so it seemed like we did get kind of more insight into these characters that were in the background in Stranger Things 1, but it came at a great expense to the characters that we grew attached to in Stranger Things. It's an interesting point, and like I, I'm surprised to hear that she's taking more of a backseat. Do you, uh, quickly, because I know Sarah Rosa wants to ch- ch- um, chime in here. Do you think we'll see a season three? I think so. I think there's enough hype for it, and whether it needs a season three, I think is debatable. I didn't think, based on watching Stranger Things two, that it needed it. 
I didn't think it really added as much as it could have to Stranger Things. Do they leave it on a cliffhanger? Because they definitely left this first season open. See, that's that's the thing is I I really enjoyed half of Stranger Things too, and as we got towards the back end of the season, it felt like it got more predictable. Like it relied on a lot of the tropes, and it seems like it wants to. I guess you could say there's a, you know an air quote cliffhanger, but it didn't really give it justice. It felt like I could. I could predict what the cliffhanger was going to be before it even happened. And so in that regard, it didn't feel like a cliffhanger. It felt like it was trying to leave a cliffhanger. I've seen a lot of stuff on Twitter about Punk 11. So I think that's a good transition into the new Taylor Swift album that's coming out in a week. What what a segue. (laughs) Yeah. I brought in, I want to talk about Taylor Swift this week because the Emerald Podcast Network has not done enough on Taylor Swift. Um, Is that a fact? No. <laughs> Don't blame me. <laughs> but so, I if everyone's been following pop culture, I mean, Taylor Swift, her new album's coming out in a week, and she's released four or five singles from and it so far. And the album is called Reputation and features one of the ugliest album covers I've ever seen yep. a modern pop star. Yeah. Like, <laughs> although Selena Gomez recently took that title with her like collab with Marshmello. If you guys have ever seen yeah. that, it the, looks like mm-hmm. someone on Tumblr like wrote a blog post about how graphic design is their passion. But so I've not liked the new singles. I'm kind of a Taylor Swift agnostic for the most part. I really like Red 1989 um, as albums. I think she's a fantastic pop songwriter and does a really good job of like crafting her own image. But I have a lot of trouble with like her as a person. So we should talk about, like, how do you make the distinction between Taylor Swift the persona and Taylor Swift the person? One of the things I've really struggled with when it comes to thinking about Taylor Swift, which I do a lot of for someone who's pretty agnostic about her, is how much of her, like, I was thinking about this before going to bed tonight, how, I mean, last night, (laughs) how much of her, like, how she presents herself to the world is just crafted by her. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of it is. It's, she's a very powerful businesswoman, and you have to give her a lot of props for that. But it's like, how much is real? You know, we we talk about this with any celebrity. But she, for someone who's crafted her image so well with every single album, from what I've seen so far, Reputation doesn't seem like it has that, that Taylor Swift, like, specific, I'm going to you know address how people see me touch it seems all over the place yeah well it's interesting to hear you say that and then say you like are we in agreement here that 1989 was at least good like i i I enjoyed it i think it's fantastic yeah definitely um and so it's interesting to hear you say that you like 1989 but then complain about like how whether or not she's manufactured because i think 1989 was like the first time she fully resigned herself to other people like taking over her image a little bit. I mean, s- several of those songs were written by huge hit makers. Um, Max Martin, Jack Antonoff, who have both gone on to do huge stuff. Max Martin is, like, responsible for, what, like 50% of the hits we've had over the past decade? Yeah, and Jack Antonoff mainly produced Melodrama, which is a fantastic album, which... Yeah, um, he d- I mean, he did the whole thing yeah, with Lord. Yeah, um, but it's interesting. A lot of the new Taylor Swift songs have just felt like bad Lord songs yeah. to me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean uh, the one I, the look what you made look what you made me do, which is was her lead single for this album, which features and credits the original band for an interpolation of "I'm Too Sexy," um, was easily the most cringy thing she's done in a very long time, um, and I'm curious to see whether her the, like what she's trying to do pans out. 
Yeah, like, what will the full album be like? Because obviously you can't make a judgment about the album until, you know, you've listened to the full album a couple times. Is it going to be really good? Because sometimes I, like, Shake It Off did not get, you know, people didn't, like, Shake It Off, and then 1989 was a great album. Um, yeah, but Blank Space also followed that's Shake It Off, and that was, like, her biggest hit in ever. That's so. true. But I was thinking, there she had this new single come out, like, last night or the night before called Call It What You Want It. Yeah, yeah. yeah and... I was pleasantly surprised with it. It felt like the most like 1989 song of the singles I've been released so far, but it still felt like a step in the, not the wrong direction, but like just a step in a weird direction, like where. Did it sound like she wasn't going anywhere in particular? Yeah. Like maybe she's staying in the same place. Maybe she's staying in the same place. I mean, she's kind of projected this whole reputation thing as her addressing the whole thing with Kanye and Kim and like addressing these snakes, but it doesn't it doesn't seem genuine it seems very crafted and i know people talk about that with taylor swift all the time but i feel like 1989 and red she played this all-american girl and was very genuine and very specific in her imagery and stuff but this call what you want she like she's talking about her current boyfriend and it's like where's that songwriting that like so many people actually really identify with you know well that's the thing i mean the her the first half of her career she she basically built her entertainment empire herself at least she wrote a lot of her songs um i can't say with certainty whether she built the empire herself there's a lot of people that go into that but she was she was enough of a songwriter to i think i think she wrote the entirety of speak now that's what i heard and and there are some big hits on that one and then 1989 she sort of signed herself over to these pop art pop producers as if to say um i want to be a pop star i can write country song can you make me a pop star um and i'm wondering if she's just gone further in that direction with this album i'm curious to see how it pans out my prediction is that it's a dud i was talking to you this early this with this to you earlier i think this is the first thoroughly average album she's going to release yeah i'm interested in seeing how it pans out you know we'll probably do a podcast next week with Taylor, the anti-Taylor Swift, the agnostic, and maybe a big supporter of Taylor Swift. So, And there you go. That's all we have time for. But you're able to hit on some music, some TV shows. And you're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. You're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. You're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. I'm Sarah Zadavi. I'm Dane Olson. You can find other episodes from the Emerald Podcast Network on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can actually stream them directly from the Daily Emerald homepage at dailyemerald.com. Thank you for listening. Watch Mindhunter.